It was funny, this uh, past week I was sitting in the living room and I overheard my daughter Margo. So this is a story I'm going to tell you, but you can't all go tell her, make fun of her. At some point when they get older, I have to stop doing this. But um, she was talking to, to my wife sitting at the table. I don't know if they were coloring or, or, or doing what, and she's chatting. And all of a sudden, she asks if we can invite Kirsten Bell over. Now, for those of you who know who Kirsten Bell is, uh, she is the uh, uh, actress who, who voiced Anna in Frozen. So I got that right. Well, uh, uh, she was really disappointed when Melissa said no, like she wouldn't want to come over. And Melissa's, well, and, and Margo was like, well, why? Well, because she's famous. And like Margo's like, well, no, she's not famous. And she was really disappointed that Kirsten Bell wouldn't want to come over to our house. So that's a weird window into an eight-year-old mind uh, that, uh, that you just can't invite, you know, a movie star over <laughs> to your house. Uh, when you have children, you spend a lot of time reminding and reinforcing reality. A lot of time reminding and reinforcing reality. You say to them things like, no, you don't have nothing to do. Right? If you've heard children say that, I don't have anything to do now. No, you have things to do. No, the pair of gloves you just lost, yes, we're in Southern California, the pair of gloves you just lost is not your greatest treasure. Now, I'm going to tell you something. A lot of these come from the same child who has a flair for drama. No, you're not going to die from that mosquito bite. That may have uh, happened after we watched a video about mosquitoes and how many women and children die from mosquito bites. No... <laughs> We don't need to go to the doctor to have that splinter taken out. Now, those are all true stories from my children. In our Christian walks, we lose sight of reality. Future unknowns, obscure, present certainties. Feelings eclipse the reality of doctrine. Earthly Pleasures trump eternal truth, and the unseen gets swallowed up by the seen. Unless we were careful, our experiences dictate our reality. Now, sometimes those experiences are pleasant experiences. They're pleasant experiences we're not willing to miss out on. But often, those experiences that are the most challenging to our grasp of what is real are the unpleasant experiences we wish were over. The saints in Asia Minor that Peter was writing to, that's modern-day Turkey, were in danger. But their danger wasn't the persecution that they faced. Their allegiance and obedience to Christ had cost them in their relationships with others. They were slandered, maligned, First Peter says, mocked. They were isolated and ostracized. They were perhaps even physically attacked. But the biggest danger that they faced was forgetting spiritual reality. The biggest danger they faced was forgetting spiritual reality. Of letting their experiences define them more than God's truth. 
of allowing their fears and feelings to have the loudest voice in their hearts, of letting their status as exiles overtake the truth of their election. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, the Apostle Peter reinforces the faith of the saints of Asia Minor by directing their attention to four spiritual realities. He reinforces the faith of the saints of Asia Minor by redirecting their attention to four spiritual realities. These realities transcended the unpleasant experiences of persecution they were going through. Let's read through 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. So go ahead and open your Bibles there if they're not already there. 1 Peter, and I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I realize I'll start out with, with verse 1 again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And here's the passage we're going to focus on this morning, verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. And Father, we come this morning uh, very thankful that you have preserved your word for us. Uh, your word in the original, original manuscripts is perfect, and we thank you for the translations that we have here this morning. We thank you that your spirit is alive, that he is here, that he is present in the hearts of those who are your people. And we trust by your grace that your spirit is going to be working through your word to transform us into the likeness of your son. Father, we know that we come this morning with, with many burdens, with many difficult experiences, battling temptations, battling fear, battling trials. And Lord, we come this morning wanting to be worshipers of you. We come this morning wanting to have our faith strengthened. We come wanting to rejoice. And so, Lord, we thank you for uh, really the riches of this passage. And pray, Lord, that we would be forever changed as we read it, read it. Thank you for your word this morning. May your spirit work in our hearts to make us like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter has three reasons for focusing the reader's attention on these spiritual realities in verses 3 through 5. He's got three reasons for doing that. The first reason we see in verse 3, he begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's writing so that saints will join him in blessing God. To bless God is to confess that he is worthy of praise. It's to express our approval of him. What follows in verses 3 through 5 is the reason we have to extol God. 
So he's writing so that we bless him. Second, Peter's writing so that the saints will persevere while suffering, that they will continue to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 3 through 5, Peter focuses on the guaranteed future of God's people. And we're going to go through those verses together. And by God's grace, our faith is going to be strengthened. So Peter wants us to be blessing God. He wants us to be continuing in faith. But then also in third, we see this in the beginning of verse six, and we read this. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. The next time we're in first Peter, we'll, we'll, we'll get to look back. But I want to just skip ahead a little bit to the beginning of verse six. In this you greatly rejoice. That this refers back to verses three through five. Verses three through five is reason to rejoice. So that's part of Peter's encouragement as well. Of course, he says, in this you rejoice. He's encouraging them in that they are rejoicing. But also there's reason to rejoice there. The spiritual realities of verses 3 through 5, what is true will give you who are in Christ Jesus reason to rejoice this morning. So that brings us what we're going to be doing this morning. This morning in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, we're going to examine four spiritual realities so that you will do those three things, so that you will bless God, so that you will persevere in your faith, and so that you will rejoice in truth. So we're going to look at four spiritual realities so that you will bless God, you'll persevere in your faith, and that you will rejoice in truth. So let's look at the first of those spiritual realities, and there's a blank there in your notes if you're taking notes. God's people have been born again by a merciful father. We see that in verse 3. God's people have been born again by a merciful father. That's the first spiritual reality. Peter begins in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see here that God's eternal fatherhood is essential to this first spiritual reality. See, Father is not just God's title. It is what distinguishes him as one of the three persons in the Trinity. He has eternally been God the Father. The foundation of our relationship, and we talked about this some last week when it said that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The foundation of our relationship to God is inseparable from his eternally being the Father of the eternal Son. The eternal Son became man, Jesus Christ, so that we could have his Father as our Father. That's an incredible truth. God the Son became man so that his eternal Father, with whom he'd been enjoying eternal relationship with, could be our Father. So that we could participate in an aspect of that eternal love, that eternal love that had been going on for eternity from Father to Son and from Son to Father. We get to participate in by being unified with Jesus Christ through faith. Because of the Father's love for his chosen children, he, he has caused us to be born again. We see that in verse 3. Who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. The focus of the verb in the Greek here isn't so much on our being born again, the new life which results from being born again. Instead, this is the focus is on the Father rebirthing us birthing us again. He rebirths us, which is a weird verb, and weirder for any moms out there. The eternal Father has reached into human history, into this time, to give birth to his children. With the first Adam, as God was making Adam, 
Scripture says that God breathed life into the dust of the ground. He made that, 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 that earth particles alive with his spirit. But because of the obedience of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the spirit now breathes life into, his, into spiritual corpses. He gives them new life. Our spiritual life begins with God's intervention. We talked about the intervention last week. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's part of that sanctifying work of the Spirit. Bringing the dead to life. Peter had known about this being born again. This is surely the kind of thing that he had heard Jesus talk about. In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3.3. Jesus answered Nicodemus and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The eternal Father rebirths the spiritually dead into eternal life in his son. So why does the father do this? Why does he give birth to those who were dead? Why does he give us this new life? Well, it says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. It's his great mercy. Our God is merciful. He is compassionate. He has pity. The Father saw us in our hopeless condition and was merciful. It's not like going to the pound and, and picking out the cutest puppy you can find and say, wow, that puppy needs to be rescued. Let's bring him home. It's like going to the pound and bringing home the nastiest dog you can find, an oozing dog with festering wounds, a lunging, bloodthirsty dog, a untrained, wild dog. None of you will go to the pound and bring home that kind of dog. Just a little picture of what God does when he rescues us. Listen to how Titus 3.3 describes us. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We were nasty dogs. We're the kind of dogs that you leave in the pound. The kind of dogs that should be euthanized. But that's not God's mercy. Ephesians 4 verse 17 to 19 describes what we were like. The futility of our mind. That we are darkened in our understanding. That we are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their hearts. Becoming, it says, describes them having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of, of impurity with greediness. That is who we were. We were avowed rebels. We were committed to our blindness. We were totally deceived and we were helplessly enslaved. That is us who God had mercy on. Our situation was desperate. We were on spiritual death row. We were waiting for however they put the dogs down. Probably should have figured out that first. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 5 describes this great mercy of God. But God being rich in mercy. That's what Peter says. He has great mercy. God being rich in mercy, Paul says in Ephesians 2 4 through 5, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
Titus 3.5 talks about God, according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness. God's salvation is not based on the works that we have done, but on his mercy. He looks and sees people who are desperately needy. And he has pity on them. He has compassion on them. This is what motivates our Father's heart to have mercy on us. Our Father's mercy is the source of our salvation. Now, our circumstances are not the proof of our Father's mercy. Our feelings are not the proof proof of our Father's mercy. Our new birth is the proof of our Father's mercy. So if you come here this morning with that new birth, Your desire is to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Your desire is to know Him. You love obedience and hate sin. Your only hope in life and death is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have that new birth, that is the evidence of the Father's mercy in your life. It's not your circumstances. It's not how well things are going in your life. It's not how great you feel this morning. And just as much as how bad you feel this morning is not evidence that you don't have God's mercy. God's mercy, the evidence of that, is that he has caused you to be born again, that the Father has rebirthed you. Because of this spiritual reality, the spiritual reality of our Father giving us new birth, you have reason this morning to do those two things Peter's talked about, to bless God, to persevere in your faith, and to rejoice in truth. That's that spiritual reality, that God has mercy bringing us to new life, that you've been born again by a merciful Father. That's if you have that new life for Jesus Christ. Brings us to our second spiritual reality. God's people have a living hope through Christ's resurrection. God's people have a living hope through Christ's resurrection. So Peter is going to list two realities which follow the Father giving this new life to us. The first reality is in the second half of verse 3. The second reality is in verse 4. So let's look at the first of these in the second half of verse 3. It says that he, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Where is this being born again leading to? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope, describes here, is a living hope. It is vital and healthy. It's not empty and futile. It's not a a superstition. It is a living hope. God's people have a living hope through Christ's resurrection. 1 Peter 1.18, Peter is going to later describe how before coming to Christ, we had a futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That's true for all of us who didn't have believing parents. You had a futile way of life, an empty, vain way of life passed on to you from your parents and your parents from their parents. Ancestor worship is a dead hope. Works righteousness is a dead hope. New age mysticism is a dead hope. Karma is a dead hope. The American dream is a dead hope. Bank accounts and mutual funds are a dead hope. Education is a dead hope. The pursuits of experience, of pleasure, of acceptance are dead hopes. Those are dead, futile, empty hopes. But our hope is living. Our hope is living and certain. Our hope is not wishing. It's not hoping that things will work out. Our hope is confident 
It is expectant and it is convinced. It's that kind of hope we're talking about. Biblical hope is a matter of waiting for the sun to rise. You know that the sun is going to rise. It's not just a vain wish that maybe the sun will rise tomorrow. You know it's coming. And that's what biblical hope is. We used to be those who had no hope. Ephesians 2.12 describes how terrible it was. At one time, we were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They, Israel had all kinds of promises. One time, though, we were separate. We are strangers to the covenants of promise. No reason why God would bring any Gentile in. We had no hope and without God in the world. We had no hope. We had no reason to hope. But now we have been born again to a living hope. Peter says that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ has already died and death has no hold on him. Peter preached right after Pentecost in Acts 2.24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the grounds of our living hope. It is the foundation of our living hope, the guarantee of our hope. Our living hope will continue to live as long as Christ continues to live. Paul says in Romans 6, 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. The perseverance, the reality of our future hope is established as a fact as the past resurrection of Christ. Our, the future certainty of our hope is as certain as the past resurrection of Christ. They are inseparably linked. When Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, our future hope was guaranteed for eternity. Now, we may not feel hopeful at times. We may feel empty. We may feel beat down. We may feel alone. We may feel abandoned. David, in Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2, talked about that this morning, right? He cries out to God, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long, O Lord? That is often the cry of God's people in this world. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But your living, future, confident hope is guaranteed by the historical fact of the resurrection of Christ. The living Christ is the embodiment of God's loving kindness. The living Christ is the security of your salvation. The living Christ is the harvest of his bountiful dealings with you, as the end of Psalm 13 talks about. Because of this spiritual reality, because of this living hope through Christ's resurrection, you have reason this morning to bless God, to persevere in faith, and to rejoice in truth. So, we have reason because God's people have been born again by merciful Father. God's people have a living hope through the resurrection, through Christ's resurrection. Here comes our third spiritual reality. God's people have an inheritance reserved in heaven. God's people have an inheritance reserved in heaven. We see that in verse 4. 
It's the second of these results. The first result of being born again to this living hope, uh, that first result is being born again to a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The second is to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You see that in verse 4. A new father results in a new inheritance. We don't inherit the futile ways of our earthly fathers. We have a whole new inheritance. Just as if we were to adopt another child, that child would have a new inheritance. Not much, but they would have a new inheritance, mostly books. For the people of Israel, their inheritance in the promised land was a key aspect of God's promises to Abraham. For them, when they read the word inheritance, they thought about their lot in the promised land. Genesis 15, 18 describes that promise to Abraham. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The word inheritance is used many times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This word used here in 1 Peter 1, 4 many times in the Old Testament, to refer to Israel's portion of the promised land. When Israel entered the promised land, Joshua, the successor of Moses, oversaw each tribe receiving its inheritance. This word is used a ton in the book of Joshua. Then that inheritance was further divided into families, and those families were to keep their inheritance. But Peter now is writing to the new covenant people of God. They are residing as aliens on earth. They are sojourners. Our inheritance is not a piece of land. Our inheritance is the promises which God has made to us. It is the Lord's presence forever. It is that sinless body that we long for. It is seeing Christ's reign in justice. It's receiving our eternal reward. It's us being freed to serve him forever with 100% obedience. Our inheritance is eternity in God's kingdom, serving God's son. Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, so this is Jesus saying this, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That is the inheritance that we are looking forward to being forever loving Christ's reign. Our inheritance is described in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, verse 7, Jesus says that he who overcomes, well, 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 um, I'm not sure uh, who's speaking here, but he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He who overcomes will inherit these things. Well, what are those things that we inherit? What are those things that we have to look forward to? Well, the beginning of Revelation 21 describes that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. 
That is the inheritance. When he says in verse 7, he who overcomes, he who continues in faith will inherit these things. That is the inheritance we are to look forward to. That picture of heaven there, that picture of eternal joy, that picture of God's presence, that is what we will inherit. That is the inheritance we have to look forward to. Now, Paul wants you to know that this is inheritance is certain. And so he uses some language to describe this inheritance in 1 Peter 1, verse 4. He uses three words to describe an inheritance. It is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it will not fade away, which in the Greek is one word. Imperishable refers to freedom from death and decay. It is imperishable. It won't rot. It is undefiled. It's freedom from uncleanness or moral impurity. There's no stain on it, and it will not fade away. It's freedom from the natural ravages of time, one commentator says. Another commentator describes it in this way. The inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by evil, and unimpaired by time. Untouched by death, unstained by evil, and unimpaired by time. It is, our inheritance is incorruptible, pristine, eternal. It has none of the uncertainties of this age, is not affected by the fall in any way. Peter describes that as reserved in heaven for you. So this, so, so this adamantium inheritance, this, this unbreakable inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. That reserved in heaven is called a divine passive. A divine passive. It's, it, it's something that God does. It doesn't say God has reserved this in heaven for you, but it is implied there. God is the one who is doing this. God is doing this reserving, this keeping, this holding, this preserving of your inheritance. He has reserved, reserved the full blessing of our inheritance until the appointed time. Our inheritance is in God's bank vault. It is in God's Fort Knox. It is in his fortress, in his pentagon. Nothing can mess with your inheritance. Christ died to guarantee that we receive this inheritance. Now, like many verses in uh, Hebrews, this verse, Hebrews 9.15, can be a little challenging. I'm going to read it, though, because it has these ideas together. For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And we've talked about that, that, that new covenant. We saw that in, in verse 2 of last week. Our new covenant is for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death, referring to Jesus's, has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, let's see, and here's the end, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Because of Jesus's death, we are going to receive this eternal inheritance. That is true for every one of you who have new life in Christ, who have been born again by the Father, who have Him, Jesus Christ, as your only hope. This inheritance is yours. It has nothing to do with your experiences this past week or this past month or this past year. It has nothing to do with your feelings. It has nothing to do with the state of your bank accounts. It has nothing to do with your physical health. It's guaranteed. Now in this life, we have much in common with Abraham who spent his days wandering in the desert and his night in tents. He was a sojourner, a stranger, an exile. Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10 describes Abraham's faith. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Like Abraham, we are by faith sojourning until we receive our inheritance. Because of the spiritual reality of this inheritance reserved in heaven, you have reason this morning to bless God, no matter the state of your heart, you have reason to persevere in faith no matter the hardships you're going through. You have reason to rejoice in truth. These are spiritual realities. This is what is waiting for us. We look at that first spiritual reality, that God's people have been born again by a merciful Father. The second was that God's people have a living hope through Christ's resurrection. The third is that God's people have an inheritance reserved in heaven. And the fourth is that God's people are protected by God's power. God's people are protected by God's power. See, God doesn't only protect the inheritance. He also protects the heirs. It describes now who are protected by the power of God. Often we speak of salvation as a past tense, which is very scriptural. Peter talks here, though, about the future salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. But we know that salvation has already happened to us. Ephesians 2, 8, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's past tense. If your hope is in Jesus Christ alone, if you've been born again by God's Spirit, you have been saved. It's certain. You have been saved from the punishment of sin. You have been saved from the power of sin. The salvation of those who have been saved is guaranteed, but there's a way in which we're still waiting to experience the fullness of it. Listen to Romans 13, 11. Describes how salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Yes, we believed and we were saved, but salvation is nearer to us now. He's talking about the final enjoyment of all those salvation blessings. It is arriving. It's coming closer. Hold on. Persevere in faith. Romans 5, 9 says, much more than having now been justified by his blood. There's no doubt about it. You've been declared righteous because of what Christ has done. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Yes, you've been justified, but we're still waiting for that final salvation from God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 describes it in a similar way. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, for acquiring it. That full experience of salvation is still future. We are still waiting to savor, to have that full deliverance from, from final judgment when we know God is not judging me. When we are still getting the full experience from the presence of sin, from the influence of sin, from the presence of all of God's enemies. See, salvation is going to get sweeter. And so there's this way that we're looking forward to it. This is, this is not the end here. We don't stay here for eternity battling sin. We don't stay here waiting for Christ to come back. Salvation is coming. In fact, he says, verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation. Then he describes this, ready to be revealed in the last time. Our, this final salvation is ready to be revealed. 
Revealed here is another one of these divine passives. The verse doesn't specifically say God is going to reveal this salvation, but it's a divine passive. We know that God's the one who's going to do this. He will reveal that salvation. He's going to allow the full implications of our salvation to be seen in the last time. He's going to pull the curtain off of our salvation. He's going to unwrap the present of our salvation. He says that this salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. It is ready to be revealed. It's ready now. It's kind of like a crockpot meal after church. It's already prepared for you. You can smell it. We're just ready to sit down at Jesus' table. That, that, that salvation is ready. We're just waiting for the last time to come at the return of Christ. At the return of Christ, our salvation will be fully experienced. The full manifestation of his kingdom will be seen. Well, how do you know you're going to get there? How do you know that that salvation is going to be your salvation? How do you know that you're going to preserve and persevere in faith until that salvation comes. We get that answer in the beginning of verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for our salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. They are protected by the power of God. God's heirs are protected by God's power. God's power is, is protecting us. It's shielding us. It's guarding us. It's encamped and around us. It is ensuring that we will receive final salvation. The same power that created the universe out of nothing is protecting us. Is protecting us until we participate in that full and final salvation. Well, how does God do this? It says, who are protected by the power of God through faith. It's God's power that does the protecting, but the means that he uses is our faith. God uses gravity to keep the earth circling around the sun. But that is God's power, it says in Colossians 1, holding the universe together. But he uses means. He uses faith to keep us for salvation. The very source of our conflict with the world, the very reason why these saints in, in ancient Asia Minor were going through so much persecution, that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is exactly how God is going to preserve us while we are in this world. See, it's God's power that keeps us from doubting God's promises. It's God's power that keeps us from doubting God's promises. And as God does that, it protects us from being persuaded by the deceitfulness of sin. Right? We listen to God because of his power protecting us. We believe that obedience is better than disobedience. His power keeps us believing, and it protects us from doubting his goodness and truth. All those things that would lead us to fall away from a living God. His power is keeping us believing. If you believe today, it is because of God's power. And it's not just because of his power when he brought you to new life. It's his power working in you, keeping you believing this morning. And if you are believing today, if you have new life in Christ, you will be believing tomorrow. And you will be believing the next day because God's power is ensuring the continuation of your faith. So our confidence is not in our ability to keep believing. 
but it is in God's ability to keep us believing. Right? We do not keep ourselves saved, but God keeps us saved. He will hold you fast through your faith in him holding you fast. This is spiritual reality. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer in him, he will keep you believing. He will protect you for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time through faith. Because of this spiritual reality of God's protective power, you have reason this morning to bless God. You have reason to persevere in faith. And you have reason to rejoice in truth. So this morning as we come together, you have a choice. I don't know what your weeks were like. I don't know what your month was like. Will you allow what you have felt this past week, what you've experienced in this past month, what you have gone through, determine what is true? Will you allow your experiences to determine what is true? Or will you submit and cling to the truth of God's word? Will you submit and cling to the truth of God's word? We are in urgent need of being reminded by what is true, of remembering what reality is. See, if you are in Jesus Christ, this is the reality that you have. You have been born again by a merciful Father. The reality is, is that if He has given you new life, you have a living hope through Christ's resurrection. You have an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. You are protected by God's power through faith. That is the reality of your salvation. So no matter what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, that is what we need to anchor our hopes on. That is what we need to bless God for. By God's grace, I hope you're feeling that in your heart now. Worship for Him because of these realities. By God's grace, you will persevere in the faith more in this upcoming week because of these certain realities. And your hearts will rejoice in the truth of these certain realities. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, uh, we did not deserve your mercy. A, a, a lifetime, millennia of us trying our best, Lord, would never have presented anything appealing to you, Lord. We would have always been a dupe of Satan and a slave of sin and an enemy of you. Lord, we thank you for your incredible grace that you did not leave humanity like that, but that you reached into human history and you brought us to life through your spirit, through the sanctification of your spirit, that you chose us according to your foreknowledge, according to that special knowing of us, that special love. You've brought us into this covenant relationship with yourself for obedience and to be sprinkled and cleansed and consecrated and made a covenant with through the blood of Christ. 
Father, we rejoice in this living hope that we have. It is certain, as certain as Christ is in heaven today, Lord. As certain as, as he is untouchable by, by any death, Lord. By, by, by all of hell's demons, by all of, of humanity's lies, when humanity joins against him with every, with every bullet and every tank and every deceit, Lord, he is untouchable, Lord, and so is our living hope. Oh, Father, we, we, we rejoice in these certainties. We rejoice of what we have reserved for us, that you today have our inheritance ready. It's done. It's finished. You're, you're, you're not touching it up. You're, you're not adding some, some, some flowers to our eternal homes, Lord. It is reserved in heaven for us. We are just waiting, Lord. And you protect us through faith. So, Lord, I thank you for this incredible hope that we have. We have reason to rejoice. In this, we rejoice. Lord, we know that part of that inheritance is that we are going to rejoice more fully. Lord, but I trust that my brothers and sisters here this morning feel, feel in their hearts the, 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 even the whiff of joy, the smell of what you have cooked for us, Lord. I pray that you would keep us in this upcoming week, Lord. Preserve them in their faith. It is your power protecting them. Oh, Lord, we come before you. We are so needy. And, uh, and we thank you that you are so powerful. We thank you that we are in your hands, that you made the billions upon billions of stars, Lord, the multitude of galaxies, and that you will hold us fast. And we rejoice in that this morning. Pray, Lord, that as uh, after our time in, in communion together, that we would be effectively encouraging one another, exhorting one another, so that we do not fall away from this great and precious hope. In Jesus' name, amen.